world peace. Almost everyone agrees that it's a good thing, so why don't we have it? A simple answer is because no one really wants world peace. Now, I suppose most people genuinely wish for a world without conflict, but that's not quite the same thing. Because conflicts have reasons. There are prejudices, interests, and grievances at play. And peace, true peace that address those reasons, have a cost. It requires dialogues and understanding, compromises and cooperation, reconciliation and trust, all of which have costs and risks. And it will demand actions we would rather not do. Some may need to give up their privileges. Some may need to acknowledge their past wrongs and make restitutions. Some may need to forgive, recognizing that some wrongs can never fully be made right. And almost no one wants to pay such price, especially when there's no guarantee that others would pay their share. And so our generation will continue to war, as did our parents, as well our children. And our world will never know peace. And according to Christianity, that is a pattern of our sin and the nature of the judgment upon us. Welcome to What Do You Mean God Speaks, where we explore important ideas and insights in Christianity for the skeptics who want to understand religion, to the Christians who have questions about their own beliefs, and everyone in between. I'm Paul Sungo-jung, and this is our eighth episode, Why We Are Still Haunted by the Idea of Sin and Judgment. What is sin? The word has a strong religious connotation, and whenever the word is mentioned in conjunction with Christianity, many of us nowadays seem to imagine some Bible-thumping man or woman shouting at people that they will be punished for the bad things they did. And specifically, what should we be punished for? Well, what do we think are the kind of things that people generally ought to be punished for? That's hard to say, since we tend to value freedom, especially here in the West, so we are reluctant to identify things that people shouldn't do, let alone be punished for. Not only that, different groups of people disagree about what sort of actions or lifestyle ought to be prohibited or punished. We usually seem to draw the line at violence, though, so hurting people, intentionally causing unnecessary suffering, ought to be punished. Yet, Most of us don't go out of our way to hurt people for no good reason. We aren't malevolent, or so we would like to think. And so many of us feel that all that talk of sin and judgment does not or at least should not apply to us. It should only apply to violent criminals and the like. But is harming people what Christianity means by sin? Is there something more than that? Well, there's sex, I suppose. Things Christianity says about sexual sins seem to apply to a lot more people than outright violence and malevolence, which is probably why in popular culture, Christians are so often depicted as being obsessed with the topic. Except that much of that kind of sin is no longer seen as wrong in a modern liberal society. So, now that I've gotten the caricatures out of the way, let's really talk about the idea of sin. Christianity and its message is deeply concerned with the issue of sin and judgment. A large portion of its worship, ceremonies, and rites are intertwined with them, leading to the call to repentance, which is to acknowledge one's sin and to turn away from it, 
and the proclamation that our sins are forgiven. But what is sin? One of the ways I think we misunderstand the idea of sin in our modern society is that we simply equate it with that of moral wrongs. And that also leads us to understand the idea of judgment in purely judicial terms as punishment for those moral wrongs like a judge sentencing a criminal. Now, there is a large overlap between the idea of morality today and the idea of sin, but they aren't quite the same. Moreover, people living in different cultures or in different times can have different set of moral values and ethical codes. So then, is something a sin when it is considered a moral wrong in one society, yet is permitted in another? Now, there are a few set of moral laws that everyone seems to agree on across different cultures and different times, but these tend to be so general or abstract that people will disagree on how they ought to be applied. So, even when we agree on general principles like be fair and just or do no harm, we still face questions over the specifics. What is being fair and just? Is capitalism more fair than socialism? Will society be more just when run by conservatives or the progressives? And what defines harm? Can a political comment harm? Is not joining a climate activism causing harm? Or is causing harm ever justified? And if so, when? And when people finally do agree on something more specific, their agreement tends to set a really low bar. Physical violence is bad, except of course, violence sanctioned by the society or your peers. So violence against innocent people is bad, except who gets to set the standard of innocence? And considering how different governments and peoples even today readily offer justifications for indiscriminate killings whenever they are accused of them, we know bars can always be lowered. So what is sin and where in that spectrum of moral wrongs should we find it? Perhaps the Bible will tell us, and it does. But if we think that it will simply give us a list of clear don'ts of moral wrongs for today, we may be disappointed. Now some seem clear enough at first, there is the Ten Commandments, except of course our secular society don't keep the first four. You know, no other gods, no idols, no taking the Lord's name in vain, keep the Sabbath and the like. And while we may nod in agreement on thou shalt not murder, well, what defines murder? That is, what is wrongful killing? Is capital punishment wrong? What about war? Euthanasia? And while we may still frown at adultery, it is no longer a crime. And the problem is compounded because the moral standard in the Bible, in the Old Testament for example, is from one particular culture and historical period, basically a Bronze Age Middle Eastern civilization of ancient Israel. And what we consider as moral or just or wrong has gone through some changes in the last 3,000 years. And that's why we struggle with the stories in the Bible, where people are punished for things that we would no longer consider to be morally wrong, or are conversely told to do things that we would condemn today. All of this adds to the question of how to make sense of this old, old idea of sin, and whether the whole idea is, well, outdated. But let's leave aside the more complicated issue of understanding each of these stories in the Bible in their proper context. That's for later seasons of the series. Now, the idea of sin and judgment is far more fundamental to how we understand and live our lives than the simpler idea of committing a moral wrong that should be punished. Even today, 
all of us are still deeply haunted by what the Christian idea of sin and judgment was trying to express, and haunted in a way that I suspect we can't fully grasp, precisely because we think we've cast aside such outdated notions. The Greek word for sin in the New Testament portion of the Bible is hamartia, which means to miss the mark. But what's the mark that we are supposedly missing? The simplest Christian answer would be God. But that answer probably isn't very informative for us at this point, and neither is the more general term, reality, which this series has often substituted for the word God. Neither really tells us what this mark that we are missing is and why that's bad. So let's think about the idea in terms of possibilities. There are many different ways that your life could have unfolded and can still unfold. There are many ways what happened could have happened differently and many ways what may yet happen will come to pass. In a way, it touches upon a specific strand in the idea of God and reality, namely that reality is not only about what is, but about every possibility, and that the meaning of the special name of God in the Bible can be translated as I will be who I will be and as I cost to be whatever I cost to be. And that means there is an unlimited array of possibilities that can come to pass as we interact with God. And some possibilities are worse than others. Or to ask the question simply, is the world we live in the best possible world we could have made it? Is your life the best that you could have made of it? Now immediately this raises a difficult question. What would the best world look like exactly? What would the best life be like? Is our idea of the best world or best life even a correct one, assuming we can coherently and clearly imagine one? So let me revise the question so that it's more modest. Could our world have been better? Not best, whatever that looks like, just better than it is now. Could your life have been better? Not only is that more answerable, in the Christian perspective, the general direction to what is better is clear. There is a verse in the Bible that's often quoted which states, God is love, which is odd, since we've been saying in previous episodes how God is the infinite and unlimited, not to mention how the Bible describes God with many other words too, with many other analogies. So why love specifically? Well, simply put, when the Bible specifically chooses the word love to describe God, it is describing our primary mode of relating to God. Love is what defines how God, how reality which is personal, relates to us, which in turn means love is how we ought to relate to everything and everyone. And in a way that makes good sense, because it is saying love is what characterizes the better world and a better life of those who correctly relate to God. Think about it. Say your life is the following. You love the people around you. You love your family. You love your relatives, your peers, your co-workers, your neighbors. And you love your town and your home. You love your job, your livelihood, and your hobbies. You love the forests, mountains, and the seas around you, the night sky, and the wonders of the natural world. And you love yourself. This isn't to say that there won't be any pain or suffering that is beyond your control, but a life that you love like this would be worth living, worth 
the pain. Conversely, say you hate your family, your relatives you have to see on holidays, you hate your so-called friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, you hate your town, your society, you hate your job, your livelihood, your boring hobbies, you couldn't care less about nature or this ugly world, and you hate yourself. What would living that life be like? Even if there's no physical pain or suffering, wouldn't this hate-filled life be hell on earth? And indeed, Hell in Christianity is defined precisely as that place, for the lack of better words, where God, who is love, is irreversibly shut out of your life forever. So, now that we have an idea of the direction toward a better world, a better life, we can ask the following. Could our world be better than it is? Now, we may not know what a perfect world would look like, but we can more confidently ask whether our world could have been more loving than it is now, kinder, more just, more caring, a world where people loved each other more in real and concrete ways, looked after each other and derived joy and meaning because they did so. Could our world be better than it is? And if the answer is yes, the question is, and it is a question from God, you could say, then why isn't it now? Could your life have been better? Could it have been where you loved it more, loved the people around you more, loved what you're doing more because you did what you thought was more meaningful, truthful, and more deserving of respect than love? And if yes, the question is again, then why isn't it now? Perhaps there were factors and forces beyond our control. Fair enough. Then given our limitation, could our world and could our lives have been better? Could we have made them better with what we can do now as limited as we are? A place and life we love more. And if yes, the question from God still is, then why isn't it now? Because that is the mark that we have missed. Sin is missing the mark, and that we have and continue to miss the mark a better world and a life that could have been haunts us, even as we think we've dispensed with the notion of sin. We know why we missed the mark, why everything isn't what it could have been or can be. We may not know clearly, but we know enough. And this why can include something truly horrific, acts of sheer malice and spite, demeaning or hurting or even killing others simply because you can but it can also include something seemingly insignificant, such as, say, treating your co-workers less graciously or patiently as you could have, or ignoring the plight of someone you could have helped. They all add up. A life and a world that could have been better, a possibility that was within your grasp, which is lost because you missed the mark. Now, some of why our world is worse than it could have been may be due to honest mistakes. The Greeks used the word hamartia to refer to intellectual errors too. We may have done the wrong things because we didn't know better. Yet, is that so? You see, the idea of sin is such that it is relentless against self-serving excuses. Was there no possible way that we could have known earlier? Were there no signs or indications that we could have given greater attention to? Are you sure that there were no voices or warnings that we ignored? For example, there have been real scientific disagreement in the past over things like whether smoking caused cancer or whether man-made climate change was happening or whether wearing masks offered protection against the COVID pandemic. 
and a lot of harm was done even while we were, or still are in some cases, are arguing about them. Now we can say we couldn't have known at the time what harm this was doing, but did he really reach the right conclusion as quickly as we could have? Or were there things we chose not to notice, data we ignored, or concerns that we dismissed? And if you were to delve deeper in our motivations and our inner character, things no one but ourselves can know about, things only God can point to, the question becomes sharper. If you were ignorant of the truth, if we missed some data or dismissed some early warnings, why did we? Aside from all the self-justifications that we can make, what really made us blind to them? Inconvenience? Complacency? Arrogance? Now, none of these are the kind of moral wrongs that will convict you in court. But it is what the idea of sin includes, our character, our heart, that led us to miss the mark. And the world we have is the result of it. And what is even more significant in the idea of sin is that sin, missing the mark, can be inherited. Let's take the issue of the environment, for example. The result of us missing the mark, the environmental degradation, climate change, polluted waters, and the oceans are passed down. But more importantly, the practices and the habits we formed that led to this situation is also passed down. The reliance we develop today on fossil fuel, plastic waste, and unchecked consumerism becomes the norm for tomorrow. Or say one set of political leaders start resorting to lies, incitement, and bribery to gain more power or popularity. And their rivals start to do the same. In the next generation, that becomes the norm of how political process works and the society becomes so much worse for it. Same goes for things like racial and social strife. From the institution of slavery to the tribal feuds, social or economic oppression, the wrongs that become established in one generation becomes the norm for the next. Sometimes the wrongs become so established that they become invisible. We may even protest that this is unfair. Not all of what's wrong with our world now is our fault. We had a terrible inheritance, we could say, though that would ignore the fact that we also inherit whatever good that our parents' generation managed to bring forth. And the question is still nevertheless relentless. What did you do with what you inherited? If some wrong was invisible to your generation, was there no way to notice what was wrong? And the sin that you inherited that you can notice, all the marks that were missed, all the lost world that could have been, is there nothing you can do now to head back toward it? Is there nothing you can do to make the world you inherited better? Not perfect, but better. To turn away from the wrong direction that you are now and take some steps, any step, toward the right direction. You may still miss the mark, but at least you can hit closer to it. We may even find ourselves to be the only one who is trying to turn back when we hear that voice, but still the question is, even if no one else will change and no one else is willing, is there nothing you can do as a single individual to make yourself, to make your world better, closer to the mark, closer to God who is love? And that's the call to repentance. But doing that's costly. There are things we will have to do, privileges and convenience we will need to abandon, resources to spend, people to reconcile, a past to make restitutions for, and grudges we need to let go or forgive. And we may say that this is unfair, 
that we have to bear the cost when so many before us haven't and so many of our peers even now won't. But if we don't pay the cost, the sin remains. That's just what life is. That's just how it works. And our lives and our world today, in an important sense, is God's judgment upon us. And I mean the word judgment in a more neutral sense here. If our world is somewhat just, fair, and beautiful, and we live among people who are kinder, more loving, more admirable, and make us love life more, then to that extent, God has judged in our favor. That and He has done so with blessing and mercy since there likely were factors beyond us that helped our effort along. Now in case you misunderstand, this is by no means saying that rich and prosperous countries are blessed by God while poor countries are being punished by God, especially not in an increasingly globalized world that we live in where one country's wealth is often built from the deprivation of another. The direction of better that we've been talking about is love, not wealth after all. But the general idea remains. What we do is judged by God. The world that comes about and the kind of lives we come to lead is God's judgment upon us, both the good and the bad. And if we have strayed horribly and each generation inherits a world and practice far worse than before, then a time will one day come when the weight of neglect, lies, and injustice will bring everything down around us. And that's why the idea of sin and judgment haunts us even now, even when we don't use the exact words anymore. Possibilities, both of a much better world and a much worse one, which we make with our own actions and character, loom before us, and we hope and fear the judgment they imply. Now, this may seem like a departure from a more popular notion of the judgment of God that many of us have, and that's because there are two kinds of judgment. Let me use an everyday example. There are traffic laws that state that you should not drink and drive. The reason for this is obvious. Given how human bodies work and the laws of physics that govern the force of your moving vehicle, if you drink and drive, there's a strong chance that you will get into an accident which may harm or kill you or other people. Now, two kinds of judgments can befall you if you drink and drive. First is that you indeed do get into an accident by crashing into another car and heavily injuring yourself. This is a natural consequence of your action, of you missing the mark. The second is that you may be stopped by a police officer and incur a heavy legal punishment. This is not a natural consequence of your actions. The punishment is imposed from the outside by forces and persons who are trying to prevent the first kind of judgment from happening. Now for Christianity, God can render both kinds of judgments, but one is a natural outflow of us missing the mark, while the other is a punishment from seemingly outside factors, which is nevertheless God's way of declaring that the direction that we were heading will lead to the first kind of judgment. So, for example, natural disasters like local swarms were sometimes seen as God's judgment in the second sense in the Bible, judgment for injustice and idolatry. How can we tell, though, if something is God's judgment in the second sense? To explore that, we need to first ask the question that has become the title of this series. What does it mean for God to speak to us? 
So join me for the next episode. What do you mean God speaks? Why we miss the real question? And also stay tuned for the continuation of this topic in the upcoming episode where we will consider the kind of sins we commit because we become religious. Thank you for listening, and if you enjoy this content and want to hear more, please subscribe, follow, leave a comment, and share. Until then, I will be waiting here. <laughs>